0: There's a man who said many years ago, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Speaking to this reality of we don't know when our day is. We are, I stand before you here, as not sure to ever preach again as a dying man to dying men. There's a sobriety. There's an, there's an urgency when we look at the things that, that matter. It's important for us to be ready for when our day comes to meet our God. And so I am eager to preach the gospel to you today from Romans chapter 1. If you would turn there, and this message was planned earlier in this week before the events of this week unfolded, but as I reread this passage in my notes here, this is what our brother wanted to share. This is not a coincidence in God's providence and in our pain and in divine appointments. We need to, we need to hear this message. And I have some words that our brother actually wrote with his own hand of what he wanted to tell others about his Lord and Savior that I'll read at the end. But Romans chapter 1 talks about the gospel and the righteousness of Christ. And this is our third week in Romans 1. If you've been with us in a series on God's attributes, that means His qualities, His characteristics, and and understanding this attribute of God's righteousness has changed lives. And it's not an overstatement to say it's changed the course of history. The empire of Rome in the early church would be changed by... Understanding this passage in Romans chapter 1, Christianity itself would be reformed by it. And this is a great need for our world, this passage. This passage is talking about our world, and it's, it's talking about God's hope for our world. So look with me at Romans 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, this is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then verse 20 mentions God's attributes. And so we're looking at His attributes. Today we're looking at His righteousness. It's one of the things that defines who God is. He is righteous. And so our, our outline this morning is, is going to start with God is righteous. Second point is, we are not. And then the third point is how God saves the unrighteous. So, pretty simple to follow along. God is righteous. We are not. And how it is that we who are unrighteous can be saved by this God. So, we're going to look at the attribute of the righteousness of God in the gospel. Look at verse 17. It says, In it, this is in the gospel, from verse 16, In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So this is where the righteousness of God is revealed. This attribute of God. And this is for our faith. This is what we live by. And this is also the power of God for the world. Paul was eager to go to Rome with this truth. And I want to start the story I want to start with the story of another man who was eager to go to Rome for another reason. Some 1,500 years after Paul wrote this letter, this was a passage that changed his life and changed the history of Christianity. Young Martin Luther, as a teenager, I believe it was, was terrified of the wrath of God revealed from heaven. He saw God's wrath on display through a thunderstorm. Have you ever seen thunder and lightning? The the power of that lightning actually struck near him. And in his terror there, he pledged that he would become a monk. That's all he knew to do in, in his day. And as a young man, he had seen a stained glass painting of a frowning Jesus. And he was he was greatly troubled as he saw it was as if Jesus was looking at him with that frown on his face and that's how he saw the Lord looking at him because of his unrighteous life. And so he he devoted himself to 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 a monastery. He was trying to do any and all religious works, any righteous thing that he could do to try to please God, to try to appease God's wrath. He wrote famously, If there ever was a monk who could be saved by monkery, it would be me. But he couldn't. He knew his conscience was still troubled. He, he couldn't get peace with God in his heart. He would sometimes spend hours in a confessional booth, confessing his sins from the prior day. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. He's saying to this man who, who can't forgive him, but he would. how can you confess something for hours? R.C. Sproul writes about this. What, what would you say, forgive me, Father, because I, I coveted Brother Andrew's potato salad? I mean, what, what all can you do in a, in a monastery in one day? But he was so convicted over his sin, and he's begging forgiveness. He's doing everything he can, and he, this is what he wrote of his days in the monastery. If I could believe, That God was not angry at me. I would stand on my head for joy. If someone could just tell me how I can have peace with God so he's not angry with me, he says, I would would be on my head for joy. But he was terrified by the righteousness of God. And he shared these struggles with a man named Staupitz. told him, if you trust in Jesus, if you trust in his shed blood, if you trust in his righteousness for you, he said God is not angry at you. You are the one who is angry at God, but look to Jesus. Look to his wounds for you on the cross. Listen to the Son of God in the Bible. And these words began to work in his heart, but he hadn't yet come to that full understanding. He'd he'd never read the Bible like, like many in his day, actually most of his world, it wasn't translated in their language, but he knew Latin and Greek and was able to read in the original language the book of Romans. And chapter 1, verse 17, gripped him as he's meditating upon it and looking at the words, studying the text and the grammar of what the righteousness of God is there. And it was sometime between 1510 and 1512 that he was sent on a trip to Rome, very same city that Paul's writing to that he was eager to, to go to in verse 15. But on the way there, he almost died, and, and again, the dread of God came upon him. He, he wasn't ready to meet God if he had died that day, and he dreaded the, the righteous punishment of God on his sins. But this time, the words of Romans 1.17 that he had memorized and was meditating on, the righteous one, or your Bible might say the just One shall live by faith. That came forcibly to his memory, and it enlightened his soul like a ray from heaven, and he was comforted and restored to health. And so he continued that journey across those hot Italian plains to Rome. And when he got to Rome, he was appalled as he saw the unrighteousness of men all around there. He thought this would be the the place where God's righteousness is, but he saw unrighteousness even in the Roman Catholic leaders there in the very sins of verses 21 through 25. He saw immorality, he saw irreverence, he saw idolatry with foolish relics. He saw a works righteousness that was all around him, people trying to work their way to heaven, trying to be a good person, but their unrighteousness was suppressing the truth, just like verse. 18. And James Boyce tells the story, when Luther came to these stone stairs in Rome, there were these, these stairs that, that people would go up on their knees. They would kneel, and they would slowly bend over, and they would kiss, and they would weep over each stair, and they would pray for people that they believed were in purgatory, and, and, and hoping that through that, maybe that would minimize some of the years of suffering to get them to heaven and he's ascending the staircase and he just begins thinking as he's going up those stairs, these words keep echoing in his head, the righteous one shall live by faith. The righteous one shall live by faith. And as he gets to the very top of that, he's realizing, I'm not living by faith. I'm living by by fear and he began to understand even as he looked around at the top of those stairs at the city around him, the the darkness, and that this verse right here, the righteous one shall live by faith, what that means actually changed everything for him, and it became this verse the foundation of his life and his doctrine and his willingness to stand against all who believed otherwise, this is what one historian wrote, when Luther rose from his knees on that staircase in agitation and amazement at those words that Paul had addressed 15 centuries before to that very same metropolis of Rome, this historian says, when Luther rose, truth also rose with him. And this is what he wrote about how he had come to understand verse 17. This was years later. He says, Up until then, a single word stood in my way. He says, I hated that word righteousness of God. He says, I I hated it that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. He says, but but I wanted to understand what Paul meant. He says, I beat importunately at, at Paul. He's at the text. He's demanding, what does Paul want in this text? And then he says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words in verse 17. Namely, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written he who through faith, this is how he understood it now, he who through faith is righteous shall live. It's a righteousness that comes through faith, and it's the person who through faith is righteous who now lives by faith. But it's all of faith, it's not of works. And he says, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives by a gift of God namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. It's this gospel through which the merciful God justifies us. That means declares us righteous by faith. He says, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and that I had entered paradise through open gates. He says, Righteousness, that word that he hated before, became my sweetest word of love. That place, he says, in Paul, Was for me truly the gate of paradise. And I pray as we look at this passage, that word righteousness and what it means will become a sweetest word to you, it will become a word that we love. Not just as one of those big words that they talk about at church, but as a, the treasure of our soul that we love. And, and if you're here today and you're, you're one of those who thinks your works, your good works can, can save you, this is, a, this is a, a truth that can swing open the, the door to paradise today for you. Because if you're made right with God, righteous by faith, if you can believe that God is not angry at you and you have peace with him through his son because you've repented and trusted him, this is a a truth that can make you stand on your head for joy. This is a truth that made the reformers able to stand against the world and to, to even turn it upside down. Righteousness, God's righteousness, is a sweetest word. And Jesus said we're to seek first his kingdom and his what his righteousness. We're to seek that above all his righteousness. It's not our own. He says, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what for righteousness." When you you recognize you need this righteousness, you hunger and you thirst for it, there is blessing that comes. You will be satisfied. But when you seek it in anywhere else, there's not going to be that satisfaction for your soul. We need to seek first His righteousness. So God is righteous. That's point number one. But what does that mean to say God is righteous? We could use other words. God is just. That's where justice comes from. He is upright. The rightness. Everything that's right about God is is contained in this word. We can say whatever my God does is right. We can say that because God is right. He's the the standard of right. There's no imperfection or imbalance in the scales of justice. He is not unfair in judging us. God is right, but even as we hear that, we, we think, well, there's a lot that's not right in this world. And that's true. There's a lot that is not right in our world that sinners choose, and that's a tension that we need to come back to. Scripture tells us God is not the author of evil. And in fact, His righteousness means that He is going to deal with evil. And we see that in the world, but we need to start by seeing that that's a problem for us because we fall short of His righteousness. But here's how Wayne Grudem describes it. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is Himself the final standard of what is right. John Frame's doctrine of God calls righteousness His perfect internal standard of right. This is what is stirred up in God when things that are not right are here going on in this world. And so it's translated righteous or just and What we need to understand is righteousness is an attribute of God, but it's also an activity of God in salvation. So it's an attribute about who God is, but righteousness is also used of an activity of God in saving us who are unrighteous. He judges by righteous justice, and he saves by his righteousness in Christ. And so verse 20 mentions God's attributes, but there's many places that talk about this attribute of righteousness. Maybe a one of the best is Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. says, His work is perfect. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. This is the God who sees this world where so much is going contrary to that. A God who is a righteous judge who will deal with unrighteousness. So that's one side of His his attribute of righteousness, but we also see there is an activity from that righteousness where he is moved to save the unrighteous. Psalm 98, verse 2 kind of puts those together. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. He makes known his salvation. He reveals his righteousness. Those are hand-in-hand, same key words and phrases from our text in Romans 1. 16 and 17. Here's what God says in Isaiah. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted. So listen, if you are stubborn in your sin and in your heart, you who are far from righteousness, God says, I am bringing my righteousness near and my salvation will not be delayed. He says, I will grant my salvation. It's a gift. It's something he grants with his righteousness to save. He says, my righteousness draws near Speedily, my salvation is on the way. He says that to all who will trust and hope in the Lord. And I think that's what Romans one seventeen is talking about. That aspect, this righteousness of God, who He is, for, is it now becomes a righteousness from God as a gift in salvation to all who believe. Because that's what verse sixteen says: salvation for all who believe. This righteousness that's revealed in the gospel. Is a saving activity of God. Romans 5, 17 calls it the free gift of righteousness. I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about in chapter 1, verse 17. Romans 5, 17, the free gift of righteousness, that's our salvation. God is righteous and God gives righteousness that we're to live by in chapter 1, verse 17. But the problem is men don't live by it and men reject his. Gifts and reject His goodness. And so verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. There's unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Unrighteous is, of course, the opposite of righteous. And in their unrighteousness, they are suppressing the truth. And God's wrath is revealed and so that takes us from point number one God is righteous to number two we're not righteous we're not righteous and this is a problem not just for our world this is a problem for all humanity as Paul is going to say because God is a righteous judge he must punish violations of his law and look at verse 29 some of those violations they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness There it is again. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. And by the way, this isn't like one person does all of this. This is what humanity is like. But just because you didn't commit murder doesn't mean you didn't envy or have strife or deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, end of verse 29. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. This has been called the Roman's Road in the wrong direction. This is a road that is leading downward, and the, the sign over this highway, if you will, is the word unrighteousness. This is where it starts. All manner of unrighteousness is the first phrase, and then everything else, flows through that and drives through unrighteousness. And verse 32 says that sinners know God's righteous decree. They, they know it's written on their hearts. They know right and wrong. Even if they don't know everything in the Bible, they, there's a conscience that even societies all around the world have this. They see God in creation, but they also see what's right and wrong in their conscience and they know that judgment is coming and we just need to know we're all in this list anytime we covet anytime we envy wish we had it better what others have anytime we're in strife anytime we talk about people behind their back anytime we think of ourselves more highly than we ought we're guilty. And we don't have time to look in detail at all these terms, but all you have to do is just look look around you. Look at the political discourse. Look at the social media today. Look at, the, look at your own heart. You'll, you'll see different phrases from these verses. We can also see in the writing and the unraveling of society all around us, we can see exactly the last two years, verses 29 through 31. We can see the dismantling of the family and the fabric of society as it mentions disobedience to parents. It talked about the breakup of, of marriage earlier through immorality. This also speaks this passage to the sanctity of life that we remember on this Sunday, even in verse 31. That word heartless means literally without the natural affection. It can be used of The father who abandons his family, or the mother who aborts her baby contrary to the way they're naturally wired. The the word murder in verse 29 and deceit can speak to those who deceive mothers against parenthood and, and plan to take innocent lives, inventing even evil. We see that around us, new ways of evil all around us. Chapter 3 talks about those quick to shed innocent blood, and that's often what happens is they suppress the truth. There's a quickness to shed the innocent blood. Proverbs fourteen thirty four says, Righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach on any people. So righteousness, God's righteousness, when that's followed, that actually lifts up a nation, but, but sin is a reproach on any people. Proverbs 31, verse 8. We're familiar with the Proverbs 31 woman, but right before that, Proverbs 31, 8, says, Open your mouth in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth. Judge righteously, Another translation says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for those being crushed. The helpless righteousness calls us to, to speak up for the unborn and, to, and to, against the unjust crushing of the helpless. Isaiah 13 talks about how God's wrath comes on those who have no pity for the fruit of the womb. It's Isaiah thirteen eighteen, or have no compassion on the fruit of the womb. That's the life of the womb. Jeremiah 22, 3, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong or violence, nor shed innocent blood in this place. We need to pray. We need to pray, as, as we already did today, pray for our land. Continue to pray for us to have a, a part in God working in our land and that God's hand might even turn the laws of this land this year and, and turn hearts back to God's righteous care for all of life. Though we can see this starts actually farther back in verse 24 through 27 with a sexual revolution and then the redefinition of marriage and morality and male and female, gender and sexuality. Verse 22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. There's people today who are professing to be woke who have become fools, who are all talking about the injustice of others but are not seeing their own unrighteousness. But that can be us too. We can be blind to this, In fact, this is all of us. If you look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written. This is from the Old Testament. None is righteous, no not one. There is no one righteous. This is in our natural state. There's not one. No one, verse 11, understands. No one seeks for God. This is talking about the unsaved. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And and then he's going to give another catalog of, of sin. But it all starts with unrighteousness. That's the problem. We're not righteous. There's not a one of us that by God's standard of righteousness can be said to be righteous on his own merits. Even with all the good things he tries to do. We're not righteous by nature. And left to ourselves, none of us really understand fully. None of us seek God. None of us do good by God's righteous definition and standard. In other words, we don't do the right thing for the right reason with the right motivation, which is to bring glory to God. By God's common grace, people do good things, but it's not the right thing for the right reason with the right heart to glorify God from a heart of faith. So we're unrighteous before a just judge. What we need is sovereign grace. We need a grace that's going to come after us. We need a righteousness that is completely outside of us to be given to us. And so that bad news takes us to our third and final point. How can us who are unrighteous be saved? Verse 21 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. But... Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when you read these words, you should imagine trumpets playing. But now, this is how God saves those who don't seek Him. God seeks them. God does something for them that they're not doing for themselves. But now, it takes us from wrath to righteousness. It takes us from the depraved to the saved. And and it takes us from, from being a guilty criminal before a judge to a beloved child of the king. We're not just guilty criminals before the judge anymore through salvation. We're actually a beloved child of the King of Kings. John Calvin said this doctrine is the main hinge on which the, the whole religion turns. And and to the reformers, how we're declared righteous or justified is going to be the language here. That was the key issue, and this was the key passage about that we're justified by faith alone. This is what turned Luther's world upside down, so that he could stand on his head for joy. And, 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 and this is what saved this passage right here. These verses we're about to read. Saved John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress in a Bedford jail. This, is, this passage here saved the suicidal, depressed William Cooper. Paul Washer calls Romans 3, 21-26 the greatest text in the Bible. Let me read it, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, this is now all believers, are justified, that means declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means a, a sacrifice to, to pay God's righteous standard, God put Him forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that God might be just. That means righteous. And the justifier, the one who declares righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God be a righteous judge and declare us who are guilty, lawbreakers. How can you declare us to be righteous? Because that's what justify means, to, to declare us to be righteous. We're not righteous. So how is that right? For the judge to just pronounce us righteous with all of our violations of the law. That wouldn't be good if, if a judge here in Sacramento did that. They saw this huge rap sheet of all these offenses, and then they just say, you know what, you're... You're innocent. You're not only innocent, you're righteous is actually more than innocent. How is that right? Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's a problem when we're sinners. Is it not an abomination for a righteous judge to justify us? The standard that Jesus laid out is be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. People say often, Well, well, no one's perfect and they think that makes it okay no that's the problem we're not perfect as our heavenly father is perfect and without perfect righteousness like god we can't be in his perfect heaven but now but now this is this is where this righteousness of god this perfect righteousness that is required to be in heaven that's not based on our law keeping this is a righteousness that is by grace through faith in Jesus and His righteousness for us. He actually lived the perfect life that we could not live. He actually obeyed God's law perfectly and fulfilled all righteousness in His life, in our place, so that He can give us His perfect righteousness as a gift. As, as He then takes our sin upon Himself, verse 21 says, This righteousness is apart from the law, but the prophet's spoke of it. This isn't something new. Paul came up with the prophets of the Old Testament, spoke of it. He had already quoted Habakkuk, the righteous live by faith, but I think especially the prophet who spoke of this is Isaiah. Isaiah says, all of our righteous deeds, the most righteous things we do are filthy rags in God's sight. But Isaiah 53, Jesus, he called, he's called there the righteous one. The righteous one comes to, to make righteous many, to make them accounted righteous by bearing their sins. And it says, so that he can see and be satisfied. That's Isaiah 53, 11. On the cross, he's pierced for our transgressions, to pay our penalty. Justice calls for sin to be crushed. Jesus was crushed for our sin. And so as God's wrath is poured out on, on Jesus on the cross, he's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is God the Son in His humanity. We have to understand these both human and divine, in his fully God, fully man, but in his humanity and his relationship with his father now, there's an estrangement there that's hard for us even to fathom. And he's even crying out, Why have you forsaken me? Galatians says that there's a sense in which he became the curse for us, the curse that was deserved for our sin. Or, or we, we sang earlier and we heard read earlier, Jesus became sin. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So Jesus knew no sin experientially. He had never sinned. But he lived that perfect life. It says he knew no sin. God made him to be sin for us. He took that penalty. He was our sin bearer for us. And then it says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So to say it simply, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived my unrighteous life. And then because I put my faith and trust in Him as my substitute, God now looks at me because I'm trusting in Him as if I live the righteous life of Christ. So God looked on Jesus as if He lived my unrighteous life. And in exchange, He looks on me as if I lived His perfect, righteous life. That's what propitiation means in verse 25, that a big word, That's what I just described there is what that is. It's the blood payment of a substitute so that God can see and be satisfied with justice being paid. So the righteous, sinless Savior died so that sinful souls can be counted free and God the just or God the righteous can be satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me and pardon you. That's the glorious truth From the the prophets, the, the wages of sin is death, but Jesus paid that debt. And so Isaiah 59 is where Romans 3 quotes from the prophet Isaiah. It says, God saw there were none righteous, and it says, He Himself stepped in to save. He put on righteousness. This is the Lord Jesus. He clothed Himself with a robe. It says, the Redeemer will come. This is what it's going to be like When that Redeemer comes, it's like He's putting on righteousness Himself like a robe. Think of a a pure white robe that He's wearing instead of the filthy rags of unrighteousness that we have. And so Romans 3.21 says the prophet spoke of this righteousness. And verse 24 talks about His redeeming work through His blood, through His life and death. And then Isaiah goes on to say that God has clothed me with garments of salvation. This is Isaiah 61.10. He has covered me, listen to this, with a robe of righteousness. Isaiah says our most righteous things are like filthy rags. But here's the good news of the gospel. He comes and he gives us a new robe, a, a robe of righteousness. It's a, it's a pure robe. And so God looks at us now and he sees us in those pure robes of righteousness, not our filthy rags of unrighteousness. Zechariah 3 says it this way, Take away the filthy garments God says, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. This is his robes for mine. Wonderful exchange. This is what we're going to sing in a few minutes here. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. So draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine. What cause have I for dread? God's daunting law Christ mastered that law in my stead faultless I can stand now with righteous works not mine saved by Christ that vicarious that means his substitute death and life his robes for mine God's justice is appeased Jesus is crushed and thus the Father is pleased Christ drank God's wrath on sin then he cried it's done Sin's wage is paid, propitiation is won. This is what takes us from sinners and makes us singers of God's amazing grace. That he would take our filthy rags of unrighteousness and would give us his robes of righteousness so God always sees us dressed as if we are his son because we're in him. And even in Revelation, it talks about those who are saved and they're wearing white robes. And John asked the angel, what is that? He said, those righteous robes. Are righteous deeds, they're they're made righteous, and there's a real righteousness, and now they're righteous and to live by faith, but what saves them is not their own righteousness. It's Christ. It's given by grace as a gift, by faith alone. Where Jesus paid the price due for my sin on the cross, he took my blame, as we sang. He bore the wrath so that I can stand forgiven at the cross, And then Romans 8 is going to say, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no wrath. There's no righteous punishment left at all. And it actually goes on to talk about how the righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled in us. So this is what makes sinners singers. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. I'm clothed in righteousness divine because in my place condemned, He stood. And then He sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! And so if, if you struggle, maybe you struggle in people-pleasing or just thinking about your... How your performance falls short and how God thinks of you or how others think of you, this truth reminds us that the way that we are pleasing and always pleasing as believers in God's sight is never based on our performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus Christ for us. That's what he sees as he sees us covered in his righteousness so that on our worst days, Jerry Bridges says, on our worst days we are never beyond the reach of his grace. And on our best days, we are never beyond the need of His grace. On our worst days, we're never beyond the reach of His grace. But on our best days, also, we're never beyond the need of His grace. It's all of grace from start to finish. And so look at Romans 5, and I want to just wrap up with how Paul applies this. He says in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope. So this is where peace comes from. The world can't give it to us. But there's hope that we can have, even as verse 3 talks about tribulations, trials, heavy, weighty things in our lives where we lack peace, we have anxiety, we struggle, we can go into depression. But then there's this peace that he talks about here. It's a peace that transcends all understanding. And it's based on the peace that is made with us through Christ and the grace that we stand in. This should give us hope in any situation As verse 5 says, hope that will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out through our heart. So we can have this hope that's not dependent on circumstances, even when we're weak, when we're helpless. We're reminded here in verse 8, and it was actually in verse 6, while we were still weak, while we were helpless, that's when Christ died for the ungodly. That's exactly where he meets us in his grace. And we have this promise that was read earlier, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, righteous. Same word we've been looking at here. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess our sins. We come to him. And then it says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. When we do sin, when we continue to fail and fall short, we can come to him. And look with me at Romans 8. In verse 30, as he mentions... Those whom he pre, here he's going to use this word justified again, declared righteous. Those whom he predestined, he also called, Romans 8.30. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, those who are saved in this way, those are the ones who are glorified in heaven someday in glory. But what's the application of, of that as he brings it up again? Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you're justified, who can be against you if God is for you? Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? All things we need. That We know if He did that with His Son, He's going to give us things that are less than His Son, the things that we need for our daily life. He's going to give that too. And we also know, verse 28, in this context, that for those who love God... He is working things together for good, and that includes things that are not good. That are not good, that He is still working together for good. I want to end in Romans 10. We've got to believe these truths. Romans 10, verse 10 says, With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So this is, this is about our heart that we're justified, declared righteous, what we believe in our heart. And go, go back to verse 9. Because if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Yesterday I pulled out the file of what Ty wrote when he, drew, when he joined this church. And he was actually talking about this very passage right here and these very truths right here. He writing out his testimony. And he said, When my entire world crashed around me, I prayed to ease my pain. I was completely lifted out of my depression and found love in Christ. I belong to Him and I will serve Him. And the question is, how would you explain to someone how they can be saved? How would you tell someone else how they can be justified, made right? Because we, this is what he wrote with his own hand, because we were all born in sin, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And God demands all sin must be punished or he would not be a righteous God. God himself came down to earth in the form of a man, Jesus, and lived a life without sin. Christ was crucified on the cross and bore the wrath of God for all of our sins. Christ bore and extinguished all the sin from all the believers, which should have landed us all in hell for eternity. Christ died for sinners. So recognize your sin and repent and call upon Christ and put your trust in Him and die to your flesh and live your new life in spirit with Christ. We got to share that, those very words. Yesterday, last night, as a reporter, wanted to talk to some of Ty's friends, and we gave her that. We also sent her, shared with her his testimony, and, and others as well. And uh, I want you guys to pray with us that this, these words that our brother wrote would go far and wide, that, that his desire to share Christ would go far and wide that hope that he had in Christ, because he was ready to meet God. He knew he was going to heaven. He didn't know Friday was going to be his last day. We don't know when our last day is going to be. But do you know for sure that you are going to heaven if today is your last day? Are you ready? Like he was. I mean, the thing that is hitting many of us is life is a vapor. Life is short. It is so fragile. We don't know when that day will be. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Now is the acceptable time. Call upon the Lord while he is near. That's what it says on the front of our church building down there. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Come to the Lord Jesus. Those, those words and, and the, the interview, it's posted through our church website if you want to watch that later. But as, as you do and as you, as you talk with people, you're going to be talking with people this week who are talking about this very circumstance. Use these times to speak about what matters and to, to speak about Christ and, and our hope in Him. And let's continue to pray for His comfort and His hope to be at work. Amen. Amen. Let me pray now. Our great God, we ask that you would continue to be at work. Lord, that you would bring good out of what is not good. That you would, your grace would be on display to many who would not hear it otherwise. We pray these things in your name. Amen.